most undeliberate of writers. Rather, it illustrates the unshakable unity of the character herself and the impossibility of writing something about her that runs counter to her nature. In the process of exploring one character's nature, I have learned about others as well, as I have learned that being a writer means following one's instincts. The stories originally concerned young Mary Russell growing and being tested, with her mentor-turned-partner Holmes relegated to a supporting role. However, as time went on, I grew interested in this middle-aged detective, speculating how he might develop once he'd escaped the control of Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. If The Beekeeper's Apprentice is an episodic coming-of-age novel, then some of its episodes belong to Holmes. None of that I knew on the day I set my pen on the page and wrote, I was 15 when I first met Sherlock Holmes. Those words, as all that follows, show a writer whose own meeting is as fresh as that of Russell and Holmes themselves. Every adventure is new, a thing never before told. In shaping the stories, I was shaped by them, as a writer and as a person. And now I leave you to Mary Russell, that she may tell the story of the apprentice beekeeper in her own words. Lori R. King, 2014. Presents The Beekeeper's Apprentice by Laurie R. King. Read for you by Jenny Sterling. Prelude Author's Note To this spot, a sort of aged philosopher had retired. Here he had built his refuge, being a little weary of interrogating men. Dear Reader, As both I and the century approach the beginnings of our ninth decades, I have been forced to admit that age is not always a desirable state. The physical, of course, contributes its own flavour to life, but the most vexing problem I have found is that my past, intensely real to me, has begun to fade into the mists of history in the eyes of those around me. The First World War has deteriorated into a handful of quaint songs and sepia images, occasionally powerful but immeasurably distant. There is death in that war, but no blood. The Twenties have become a caricature. The clothing we wore is now in museums, and those of us who remember the beginnings of this godforsaken century are beginning to falter. With us will go our memories. I do not remember when I first realised that the flesh and blood Sherlock Holmes I knew so well was to the rest of the world merely a figment of an out-of-work medical doctor's powerful imagination. What I do remember is how the realisation took my breath away and how for several days my own self-awareness became slightly detached, tenuous, as if I too were in the process of transmuting into fiction by contagion with Holmes. My sense of humour provided the pinch that woke me, but it was a very peculiar sensation while it lasted. 
Now the process has become complete. Watson's stories, those feeble evocations of the compelling personality we both knew, have taken on a life of their own, and the living creature of Sherlock Holmes has become ethereal, dreamy, fictional, amusing in its way. And now men and women are writing actual novels about Holmes, plucking him up and setting him down in bizarre situations, putting impossible words into his mouth and obscuring the legend still further. Why, it would not even surprise me to find my own memoirs classified as fiction, myself relegated to cloud cuckoo land. Now there is a delicious irony. Nonetheless, I must assert that the following pages recount the early days and years of my true life association with Sherlock Holmes. To the reader who comes upon my story with no previous knowledge of the habits and personality of the man, there may be some...